Well, why don't we stand and read from 1 Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Peter writes this instruction. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Lord, we know from experience in Genesis House after the last five years of ministry that it doesn't matter whether we look at 20 verses or two verses, you have a lot to say to us. And I never forget what uh, Professor and Dr. Al Coppice talked to us on the houseboat, that is, you get older and more mature in your faith, that you can go back to the same scripture that you thought you knew and had studied years ago, and it just comes more richer and deeper to you as you understand more things. And it's like an onion where you peel layers, and you, in your first few months of Christianity, you see it at the top layer, but 15, 20 years later, you see five, six layers deeper. Uh, everyone in here is a different place in their faith in terms of their time in relationship with you. We've maybe have people who've been with you for weeks or people who've been with you for decades. But regardless of where we're at, we ask you that whatever layer of the onion you have for us in these two verses that you bring it out, may we understand your word in a way deeper way than we ever did before. And the only way that's going to happen is if you help me relay the truth to the, to the church in a very clear and concise way. I pray for your Holy Spirit to guide me and to uh, lead us as we uh, dive into this today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So let me remind you of where we left off last week. Remember that the church that Peter was writing to was uh, enduring a lot of trials. It was a suffering and persecuted church, and they were in danger of losing hope. So Peter writes this letter to encourage them. And in verses 1 to 9, in which we covered last week, we see Peter beginning to strengthen these Christians by reminding them of the great salvation that had taken place in their life. These men and women are God's chosen people, and a true spiritual transformation had taken place. In verse 3, he said, you are born again to a living hope through the death and resurrection of Christ. And as a result of this uh, um, new birth, uh, a great future promise awaited them. That was the, the promise of heaven. But Peter also reminded these Christians that although they could be assured that they were indeed saved, it was not a salvation free from trial and not a salvation free from testing and suffering. That was a future reality for heaven, but not a present reality here on earth. But up to this point in their lives, they'd been unsure. So the natural question that this, these church goers would have been asking is this. Have I missed something in the gospel? Have I missed something that that my life as a Christian is filled with suffering? Have I missed the fact that I'm being rejected by my culture and I never expected that to happen? And so what Peter does in verse 10 to 12, and he seeks to increase, increase their appreciation for the salvation that had occurred in Christ. And basically Peter in verse 10 to 12 is really saying this, no church, you haven't missed a thing. You're right on track. So he goes ahead here and he reminds them that the spiritual blessings they now had in Jesus were actually greater than those envisioned by the Old Testament prophets and even the angels of God. 
So let's take a look at what Peter says now in verse 10 regarding the prophets. How are these prophets, how are these Christians to look at the prophets and understand that they were actually right within God's will and God's plan in terms of how their Christian life was being experienced? Well, notice in verse 10 the content of their message. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come, a grace that would come, this grace then was largely future. Now, this is important because this is not to say the prophets were looking forward to a saving grace that did not exist in the Old Testament. It's not, that, it's not as if that God didn't save people in the Old Testament. Remember how he viewed Noah? He was a righteous man. Remember how he viewed Abraham? He was declared a righteous man. And there were just countless numbers of men and women through the Old Testament that were considered righteous. They had received God's grace. They had received His forgiveness from their sin. But the thing about the prophets is they recognized there was even a greater exhibit of grace still to come. There was something greater to come in the future. And this was going to come in the form of a person. In the form of a person. And which was the Messiah, or God's one Son. And we pick this up here in verse 11. They said the prophets were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating that He was coming. So we know that they understood in their writings that God was going to send someone to be the fulfillment of God's grace, but it was a future promise. Now, what's interesting about these prophets, though, is even though they were writing about Him, two things were eluding them. Two things. Verse 11 picks this up. They wanted to know what person was going to be the Savior and what time the Savior was going to come. So what's interesting is they know they're writing about the Messiah and they know they're writing about God's future grace and they know it's coming in the form of a person, but they don't know his identity and they don't know what era he's going to arrive in Israel and how he's going to impact the world. But just because they didn't know didn't mean that they didn't go to huge efforts to try to find out. Look at verse 10. It says there that these men who prophesied the grace that would come made careful searches and inquiries. Careful searches and inquiries. Now, when you read those words, you might think, well, they were simply pondering about the Messiah, or they were just sort of daydreaming and wondering off and on as the days went on about Him. When you understand the Greek words and what these mean, you will see it's far more extensive than that. The Greek words for search and inquire basically carry the idea of diligently seeking, painfully scrutinizing over something, and investigating to a deep measure. And actually, these words are used in how people in the, in the New Testament seek after God. It's how people seek after God and how God wants to be sought after. So this is not a simple pondering, a wondering, a daydreaming. Like a, 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 this is a, um, going to diligent efforts to seek out and uncover truth of who Jesus was and how he fit into God's plan of redemption. Now, a particular interest to these, to these men and women, or sorry, the prophets, I should say, who were, who were men, was, was two categories in verse 11. They were, very, they were very curious and were very investigating deeply the prophecies concerning A, his sufferings, and B, his glories to follow. So what the content of their searching and inquiring was, was the death and the suffering around the Messiah, and also the glories to come, the resurrection and his kingdom promises for the future. Now, these are so important for us to know um, in terms of like 
well, it's actually so important for the prophet, prophets in terms of where they're putting all their time and energy, I thought we should know as a church what they were looking into. Now, Isaiah 53 is the most popular, um, probably uh, popular, most known prophetic message about the Messiah. Actually, they call it the suffering servant, and, and, and it starts actually at the end of 52, but the whole t- uh, chapter of 53 is dedicated to him. And I was tempted to put it up here and go through the whole thing. I thought, no, I'm not going to. You probably know it, and if you haven't, it's, it's, you'll, it'll, be, it'll be revealed to you one day. So I thought I would reveal to you some prophets, prophecies that you may not know of, or that be more obscure to you. So let's look at some of the passages in the scriptures that these prophets would have been looking into concerning his sufferings. Okay, so here's some details about the suffering of the Messiah before the crucifixion. Look at Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Of course, this is a reference to the scourging he received and the treatment before the high priest and on his way to, to, um, to Calvary, before the cross. Look at Psalm 22, the details of the crucifixion. Look at the attitudes of the people towards him. Psalm 22, verses 6 to 8. But I am a worm and not a man, approach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Look at Jesus' own experience and his own thoughts when he felt abandoned by God on the cross. Psalm 22, 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. How about in reference to the actual physical suffering on the cross? Psalm 22, 14 to 18. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of the death, for dogs have surrounded me. The hand of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Remember Jesus on the cross? I thirst. Here he talks about his jaws being his tongue cleaving to his, his jaws. He, Jesus never had a bone broken in his body. He says, he says here, uh, they pierced all my hands and my feet, but I can count all my bones, and so on and so forth. How about Zechariah 12, 10 and 11? This is a response of Jesus' followers. Je- this is a response of Jesus' followers. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. If you go to the Israel tour, you're going to go see Megiddo with Peter. How about the response of the disciples at the crucifixion? Zechariah 13.7 Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And this is actually quoted later on uh, as a reference to the disciples when they abandoned him at the cross. 
about the predicted glories. Where are the passages in the scripture that talk about his resurrection, his eventual kingdom he's going to have on earth, and the coming of the kingdom in glory? Well, let's start with Psalm 16.10. It's a prediction of Jesus' resurrection. Psalm 16.10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And this is quoted in the New Testament a couple times by the New Testament writers to say this is a proof, a passage of the resurrection. How about Jeremiah 33, 14-16, speaking of Christ as King and His enthronement. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good, world, good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at the time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. And how about the description of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom at his second coming? Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. And its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing. And coming out from, being, from before him, thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Can you see why the prophets so diligently and carefully had to search for the truth? Could you imagine not knowing what... So imagine what you know, what you know about Jesus and removing that from you in terms of what you know from the cross on, and you have to wade through these passages to figure out what, the, what God was trying to do in terms of the plan of salvation? I mean, just, just think it logically in this way. You're a Jew. How do you kill people? You stone them. And there's references to, like, piercings and all these types of things. I mean, it's not even in your mindset of how this is all going to take place. And if, if Jesus has come to rescue and redeem Israel, which is what they also thought, how in the, what's this whole thing about him dying? How does suffering play into this prosperous king who's going to basically save the nation? I mean, you can see it, you can understand it. And you know, I was thinking about this, like Rob and I met for uh, coffee this week and had this conversation. Uh, maybe you can, him, him and I had this conversation, how we could relate to maybe what the prophets are going through. We talked about the second coming of Christ and uh, the end times and revelation stuff. And, you know, when we were talking, we were, like, making declarations about what we could say in confidence, but what we had a lot of questions about. You know, I think it's going to go like this in certain passages, but I know for sure it's going to go like this in these passages. And what are Rob and I saying? We know about the second coming of Jesus. We know how it's going to play out to some degree, but we have a lot of unanswered questions. So you and I, as New Testament Christians, can sympathize with these prophets in terms of the fairness of how it would be very difficult to decipher all that's being said here. But here's the thing that Peter didn't want these, uh, these believers to not to miss. You see, these Holy, Holy Spirit-inspired predictions and prophecies concerning Jesus' and death and resurrection was not for their benefit. It wasn't for the prophets' benefit. It was for their benefit, for people like you and I. We pick this up from verse 12. It was revealed to them, them being the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which you have now been announced to you through the, those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Remember again the question that these Christians are asking themselves. Have we missed something? Life is tough as a Christian. We're being persecuted. We're suffering. 
Have I missed something in this? And Peter says this, I can assure you that the salvation experience you are living out was predicted by the prophets, accurately proclaimed to you by the apostles and subsequent preachers who brought you the gospel. In other words, you're right in line with God's plan. I mean, they, when they wrote of the sufferings to come, you are experiencing that. So they predicted it, you're experiencing that. So take, take uh, comfort in knowing that you're actually in God's plan and you're in His will, you're not outside of His will. If, if the Messiah was to suffer and then re- receive subsequent glory, then you are to suffer as well and receive subsequent glory. So you haven't missed a thing. You're right on the mark. So again, if you can see what's happening here. These believers think they're outside of God's care. And Peter's saying this. These prophets long ago knew what you were going to experience and they predicted it. So you're right in line with everything God has intended for you as a believer. Let me tell you how this shaped my theology this week, okay? This is how I, here's how I've changed in my thinking towards this. And this is a, I don't know if you do this, but I do this. So often I'll be like in my car or just like, you know, going for a walk and I'll be thinking, man, God, I wish I could experience the kind of faith and life that Abraham had. Or I'll say, I wish I could have the, the, the faith and experience, the Christian experience that Jeremiah had. Do you see what Peter's saying to you or to me in that? He's saying, Dexter, you got it wrong. You got it wrong. See, I would have thought if Jeremiah and I got together with it for coffee at Starbucks or Brown Sugar or Tim Hortons, wherever we go, I would be basically bombarding with Jeremiah with questions and he would just be filling in with details. See what Peter's saying? It's the opposite. Jeremiah would be pebbling me with questions, asking me what it's like to live out this Christian experience and my understanding of the Messiah and how that relates to my Christian life that he never got to experience. So he's, remember, they're, making, they're seeking to know what person or time uh, that the Messiah was coming and trying to figure out what these sufferings and these glories meant. And it was not, and so it wasn't for them, it was for us. So Jeremiah would be pebbling with me with questions and pebbling me with questions saying, tell me about your Christian experience. You see how these are words of reassurance for these believers now? Because now they're realizing they're right within God's plan that they're suffering on a part of Christ and they've missed nothing. But we learn something else from Peter of tremendous importance. And that's how valuable and reliable the scriptures are to him. How does Peter help these Christians get through this tough time? and help encourage them to go through their trials by focusing on the reliability and the trustworthiness of God's Word. They were to take an objective, historical approach as opposed to an emotional one. Let me try to expand on that. In times of trial, those of you who are highly emotional in this church, you know know who you are, I won't call out any names. (laughs) Roger, thanks for putting up your hand. but those of you who are extremely emotional, when you go through times of suffering and trials and being because of your, uh, your connection to Christ, you might go emotionally to the, try to re- relate to Him in a relational way. So Jesus, I know that you suffered and so I know I'm right within your plan and you go down this mindset and you're trying to look for the emotional side of the cross to get you through a trial. Peter, there's nothing wrong with that. You can do that. But, he, but what Peter's doing here is saying, actually, you can step aside from the emotions and just take a historical, objective approach to your suffering and trial. You can trust the fact that the scriptures that were predicted hundreds of years before you even became a Christian are being fulfilled. 
And so you're knowing that you can actually put the, take, just take a logical conclusion and go, you know what? I'm actually right within God's plan and I haven't been forsaken or forgotten. I can rely on the scriptures. The prophets predicted it. The, the, the apostles and the, um, the men who brought, or women who brought them the gospel message that they believed in through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit present in the apostles, same Holy Spirit who brought them the gospel, same Holy Spirit in the, in the prophets, the same Spirit is giving them the same message. And they can rely on the scriptures that everything is right on. And you know what? Jesus did the exact same thing. Do you remember the road to Emmaus? Jesus is crucified. And these men are walking along on the road to Emmaus. And they're, they're, they're forlorn and they're downcast. And Jesus appears to them and they don't know what's him. And uh, he pretends like, you know, he doesn't know what's going on. And he says, so boys, like, what's happening here? And he says, have you not been around Jerusalem? Have you not known what's going on about the Messiah? <laughs> and so they, they go on down this path. And then he eventually wants to reveal himself to him. And how does he do it? Not through an emotional high. He goes back to the prophets and the scriptures to make them see that everything they're experiencing was right on plan and to take a historical and objective approach to the gospel. Look at this in Luke 24. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in, in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Peter, I know you're having a hard time. Go back to the reliability of the scriptures from the prophets to know that you're right on with God. Jesus, I know you're having a hard time, but go back to Moses and the prophets to know that everything is bang on and you're, you're okay with God. <laughs> you can see an application for us. You're wondering, why am I suffering? Why is life hard? Why is this so difficult in terms of my rejection because of my relationship with Jesus Christ? Why does the world around me seem to think nothing of me? Well, the prophets predicted it. Jesus said, go back to them and look at them. Take an, a, an objective look at the scriptures to see that you're okay. So Peter here goes on to provide even more assurance then that the salvation experience we're living out was right on track with God. But now he doesn't go from the perspective of the prophets. He goes from the perspective of the angels. Look at verse uh, 12. He says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through the, those who preach the gospel to you by the Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It's interesting as believers, we often wonder about what angels know and experience in the spiritual realm. Right? Don't you? I do once in a while. And I wonder what the angels, what it's like for them to be in heaven. What, what is it like to experience their kind of life? What is it like to be in relationship with God that I don't have? And I think that's a natural question and a natural mindset. But you see what Peter's doing here? He's saying to these Christians, just as much as you're intrigued by them, they're also extremely intrigued by you. They long to look into your Christian experience. That word long, again in Greek, is just to describe a strong desire, not easily satisfied. Now what's very interesting, it's the same word used in Matthew 5.28, speaking to married men who look at other women with lust in their heart. So the exact same Greek word for longing is in terms of the angels longing for, to know what our Christian experiences are, is the same word as lusting after a woman who's, when you're a married man. 
So you can see here this incredible passion for the angels in terms of how they're trying to look into our Christian experience. They have a deep curiosity about matters pertaining to salvation. Now why? Well, one reason is they don't need to be saved. Holy angels can't experience salvation. They're already right with God. And fallen angels can't be saved. Their lot was set when they rebelled in heaven. So they can't ever be forgiven if they were, once they rebelled. And they can't, they can't be saved because they're already right with God. Alright? So why would they care so much? Well, what's the primary purpose of an angel in the scriptures, in the Old Testament? What do you see, or even the New Testament, what do you see them doing? Their primary existence is that they bring glory to God. They bring glory to God. I got, I've written down three or four cross-references of how they bring glory to God. At creation, though, they, they give glory to God. When, when someone becomes saved, they rejoice in heaven. They, everything, their whole lives are about bringing glory to God. So they wonder what it's like to experience the gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. They wonder what it's like to suffer on His behalf. They wonder what it feels like to wait in expectation of the hope of heaven and the glories to come. Why? Because they want to be able to participate in praising Him to an even greater degree. If they could understand these things, if they could continue to praise God in a way that they've never experienced before. And so this is why they long to look into us and they think, how do you human creatures do this thing? How do you stay, how do you do, live out this faith when you have a choice of how you're going to respond to God and I don't? Like our fate, we had a choice at one time, but our, our fate is set and, we, and we, here we are. I want to finish with an interesting scene from heaven in Revelation 5. Verse 7. If you would like to turn with me there, you can. I have to turn there myself. Revelation 5, verse 7. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands sang with a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. See what's happening there? They're joining with the saints in praising God for His salvation through the blood of Christ. Something they've never experienced, but they're there in heaven just rejoicing about how God has done this. And, and, he's, and the angels are part of this in song. So again, Peter's encouragement and assurance of these Christians was basically to say this. You might think you've missed it. You might think you've been forsaken. But remember, the spiritual blessings you now have and the Christian experience you are living out is far greater than anything that was envisioned by the Old Testament prophets and God's holy angels. So you're not forsaken by God. You're blessed and privileged to be living out this Christian life as a suffering believer. <laughs> Can you imagine that in your own life? Rejected by the culture, ostracized by your family? You don't think you're privileged, do you? You probably go home and cry in your room 
put your head between your knees and go, why doesn't my family love me anymore? And the angels are longing to look into the experiences you're having. And the prophets are wondering what life is like. And if they could have coffee with you, they'd be like just celebrating what you're being experienced in your life. Because they've been writing about it and have no idea what they're talking about. That's a great mind shift in your mindset as a Christian, isn't it? It was for me. There's really two lessons I want to focus in on here. First one is this. As believers, we can trust the historical accuracy of the scriptures as a means of gaining strength in times of trial and testing. As believers, we can trust the historical accuracy of the scriptures as a means of gaining strength in times of trial and testing. I mean, many of us use emotions to try to like get through situations, right? And we kind of cling to the cross of Christ and his and his forgiveness and like and, and, and like we, we try to reach out to the emotions he experienced to try to mirror those in our own lives. But Paul, Peter's saying, if you're not like that, you don't have to. You don't have to. Just go take an objective, historical look at what the prophets wrote. Look at what Jesus said in Luke 24 and say, you know what? You're right in line with God. You're a privileged group to be going through this. In regards to these prophecies, some people will say, you know, um, these are just merely fluke. There's merely fluke. I mean, I, all those ones I just mentioned, that's fluke. There's no way that, that like, you know, God is divine in His inspiration. The Holy Spirit led these men this way. This is complete fluke. I want to read you something from a book by Josh McDowell. It's called Already Defense. It's an apologetics book to help us defend our faith as Christians. I want you to read what this guy named Harold Artsler wrote. He was a representative of American scientific affiliation. And he writes about the chances of this, of these being fluke, even if we just had eight of Jesus' prophecies fulfilled. Okay? So all he, like, there's, there's multiple, multiple prophecies. He just says, what are the chances of this being fluke if I just took eight prophecies? Listen to what he says here. We find that a chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies would be one to the uh, one, and he has a list of 17 zeros after it. Okay? So it's one to the power of 10 with an exponential 17. I didn't, I'm not good at math, obviously. How do you say that? 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's what it is. So put a number, so given an illustration, uh, 1 billion has 9 zeros. has 17 zeros behind it. <laughs> he says that would, in order for us to comprehend this staggering probability, listen to this illustration. If we take 10 to the 17th power, silver, dollar, silver dollars, and lay them on the face of Texas, they will, over all the state, be two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is just the right one. What chance would he have of getting that right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and of having them all come true in any, from any one man, from their day to the present time, providing they wrote them in their own wisdom. Now these prophecies were either given by inspiration of God, or the prophets just wrote them as they thought they should be. In such a case, the prophets had just one chance in 10 to the 17th power of having them come true in any man, but they all came true in Jesus Christ. <laughs> right? 
You see why you can take a historical approach to Christianity in the midst of trials? This, is a, this isn't a Christian writing this. This is a scientist saying, I'm just doing probability of math here. The scriptures are darn well accurate. And you can rest assured in those. Lesson number two. As believers in times of trial and testing, we need to remember that we are the most privileged of all God's people in the entire church era. We are the most privileged of all God's people in the entire church era. The prophets want to know what you know, church. Isn't that scary? Or exciting, depending on how you look at it? Jeremiah takes you out for coffee. He's like, tell me about what it's like to live out this Christian experience. I wrote about it, but I don't get it. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Tell me about everything I wrote. Can you explain to me what it meant that his jaws were cleaving, or his tongue was cleaving to his jaws? What did it mean for him to be pierced? What did it mean that dogs were encircling him? What did it mean that the ancient of days was coming on his kingdom? And you sit down with Jeremiah and you say, here's what it means, here's what it means, here's what it means. And the guy is ecstatic because you're teaching him the truths that he wrote about. And he wrote about a suffering Messiah and that the realities of the Christian lives would be the same. So we're not forsaken. We're privileged to know these things. Suffering due to our connection with Jesus Christ is normal. And we're privileged because of it.